1: award-winning one-woman show Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter Growing Up with a Gay Dad This is happening at the E-Bar in Guelph on Friday, May 23rd Based on her best-selling memoir Wearing's compelling show tells the story of growing up with a gay father in the 1980s Balancing intimacy, history, and downright hilarity This is a captivating tale of family life Deliciously imperfect Riotously challenging And full of life's great lessons and love This all-ages licensed performance Of Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter Takes place at the E-Bar Located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph On Friday, May 23rd at 8pm sharp Tickets are now available At the Bookshelf Bookstore Also located at 41 Quebec Street Or online via Ticketbreak.com And for more information about the show Visit Eden Mills Writers Festival.ca. The E-Bar is not a fully accessible venue Creative Control with Bish Comic. On the program today, author and playwright Alison Waring of Stratford, Ontario. She has written a book, a couple of books, but her latest book is called Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter Growing Up with a Gay Dad. It is a book. It is a one-woman show. She's bringing this one-woman show to Guelph on Friday, May 23rd, so I'm going to go see that. I enjoyed the book very much. It got to me. It made me want to eat croissants. It made me think about my own family and our struggles with uh, a family member. My Well, I'll, you'll find out on the episode. I don't want to spoil it. But I, we, I've i gone through this. When a family member comes out and the other family members can't deal with it, it's hard. So if, if you can relate to that or if you think your family was weird, maybe they weren't weird. Maybe they were normal in their own way. I don't know. But Alice and I had an insightful conversation, and I want you to hear it. So here it is, myself and Allison Waring. Hey, this week's episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero. For my money, the best pizza you can eat in Guelph, Ontario, a proud independent family business run by a punk rocker, Trocadero only uses a rich array of fresh ingredients cut by hand and homemade dough made daily all baked to perfection inside of a stone oven it's gourmet panzerati, calzones wings, salads, garlic bread, breadsticks and oh man, the pizza the pizza, personally I like the gourmet Domateo with goat cheese artichoke, roasted red pepper, mushrooms I sub out the turkey breast for eggplant, but that's just me wash the whole thing down with a brio Man, I am getting hungry just talking about this. Call Pizza Trocadero at 519-829-2444. Visit them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph and online at trocaderoguelph.ca. T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H.ca. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. I was a lad, I served a term as office boy to an attorney's firm. I cleaned the windows and I swept the floor and I polished up the handle of the big front door. He polished up the of the big front door. I polished up that handle so carefully that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. Alison so Waring is an author, musician and theatrical actress based in Stratford, Ontario whose first book was the internationally acclaimed travel memoir, Honeymoon in Perda, An Iranian Journey. Her latest book is another compelling memoir called Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter, Growing Up with a Gay Dad, which she's adapted into an award-winning one-woman show. The Eden Mills Writers' Festival and the Bookshelf present Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter, Growing Up with a Gay Dad, at the E-Bar on Friday, May 23rd, and here now to discuss it further is Alison Waring. Hi, Alison. How are you?
0: I'm very well. Thank you for having me.
1: Of course. Now, where in the world are you?
0: I'm in Stratford, Ontario.
1: (laughs) Stratford, Ontario. Now, what's it like there in Stratford?
0: Oh, it's a fantastic place to live, actually. Um, And it's even more... We live right around the corner from the Festival Theatre, so our neighbourhood... It's a bit like living in a theatre, because our neighbours are actors, directors, costume designers, stagehands. So, it's a bit like living backstage all the time. It's really
1: fun. Now you're from Peterborough uh, originally. What brought you to Stratford in the first place?
0: Mm. Uh well, just we came here by chance actually. We were living in Mexico and had been for almost 8 years and we're looking to to settle back in Canada and we'd been looking up we'd been living part-time and looking up north of here and then someone suggested because I was doing so much theater, someone suggested that that we look at Stratford and initially I thought, "Oh, I bet it must be all full of stuffy Shakespearean types but we uh we drove in I'd come here for theater but I'd never actually looked at it as a place to live I just looked at it as a place to come see shows and um we drove in and it's so pretty and the houses are really lovely and very reasonable even though it's so close to Toronto and other places where houses are not reasonable Mm -hmm. and um we looked around and bought the third house we walked into, just like that. Wow. But we didn't have any reason to be here and we knew no one, but it's been the best decision we've made in a long time, I'd say.
1: Now, have you immersed yourself in the local theatrical community as well? I know you've been taking the show around the world in some ways, uh, but are, are you Yeah,
0: I Well, there's a there's a festival of independent theater, dance and music that happens in May every year in Stratford called Springworks and I premiered um the expanded version of confession so the the version that i'm now touring i premiered it at that festival
1: okay so yeah you you do feel like this is an important uh place for your practice as well
0: oh yeah and it's a very inspiring place to be just because people come here from all over the world to participate in or attend the festival it becomes um I think it, it's a community that is very welcoming of outsiders for one because people are always coming and going. It's not the sort of place where, you know, you have to live here for a few years before you feel you belong at all. And certainly not in our experience. It was more like two weeks. Hmm. And and because of that, there's a lot of really interesting collaboration that happens too, or just being able to talk to people about what they're working on or see things in development and um, and it is amazing who you can run into at the local coffee shop. And, uh, it, it, you know, it's sort of like um, a, say, a Broadway stage, but on, in a small town. So it's much more accessible in that sense. And then anyone who's an artist just, I think, has direct access to some pretty extraordinary work.
1: Right. So when you conceived of this story or this, this book... And again, I'm actually, uh, I need you to clarify which kind of came first, the idea for uh, the book or the idea to create a theatrical uh, version of the story. Can you maybe first of all clarify that?
0: Sure. Yeah, it's a good question. It started as um, a series of pieces that came to me as I was working on a different book, which still hasn't been published, although I hope I finish it soon. Um, that story, actually, that book was that took place in Mexico. And so it had nothing to do with my childhood, although the writing that book required me to uh, to just pull back into my own memories Um Memories of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so as I was doing that, as I was trolling back through time, I kept stumbling upon these memories of my childhood that were really really funny and really fun and very colorful and I realize now in hindsight very unusual at the time everyone thinks their childhood is normal just because that's what they're living but only with time do you realize how unique your childhood actually was or your you know your parents or whatever it might be we all have something about our histories that at the time we don't think of as anything special and then I think in hindsight we look back and realize it's quite extraordinary just for being so unique and so um, I started jotting them down just for fun. And I tried to weave them into the book that I was writing, although it didn't work at all. Um, and so I pulled them out and they became an essay, which I never, I tried to publish and no one was interested actually. It was very long, it was about 45 pages. And so that's a hard sell to any magazine. Um, and so I just put it aside. For several years, and I started performing my first one-woman show, which actually takes place in Mexico, and as I was performing, I kept thinking, oh, this story about my dad would come to life so well on the stage. For one thing, both my parents are musicians, and so I immediately imagined there being a very strong musical presence throughout the whole show, and then my dad is quite a theatrical character, and um, I, I just could imagine sort of dancing around on stage and it it was a series of inspirations, I guess, that led me to return to the director of my first show and say, what do you think of this? I ha- I keep having this idea. And he just jumped on it. Hmm. And we created the show from this essay, actually. We used that as the skeleton and then created the script very quickly. And the whole show came together from that first meeting that we had to the moment I premiered it, was only five weeks, which for me, I've never had anything come together so quickly. But Because we only met twice a week for two hours. It wasn't as though we had long rehearsals or long days or anything. It just sprung to life. And then I performed that for a season. And in, I think in response to the audience um, feedback I was getting, I realized, um, well, I applied for a grant because I realized there there was a real potential for a book in here and it just felt like a bigger story than just my little story of childhood it felt oddly that it resonated with a lot of people not because a lot of people grew up with gay parents but because a lot of people grew up believing that their families were not as perfect as they were supposed to be and they looked around and saw thought that everybody else was having a happy easy time of it and that their family was somehow um imperfect or inadequate or horrific or whatever it might be and i i think it it's actually in that sense a much more universal story because we all, all, so many of us have aspects of our lives that we f- feel we have to cover or hide because they're less than perfect certainly children i think a lot of children feel that way In my case, it was a gay dad, but in other families, it was, um, you know, an alcoholic father or a depressed mother or whatever it might be, you know, an immigrant experience where certain elements of um, of their family life were embarrassing to them just because they were so different from the mainstream that they were trying to fit into, whatever it might be, I think we all, so many of us in any case, so many of us grew up with this sense of um, I guess it's a sense of shame, actually.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I can relate to that, and it's funny that you started off uh, explaining that you initially assumed your family was quite normal. Um, because I actually had the opposite compulsion, and I think a lot of people do now. I feel like most of the people, like the people I talk to my age, kind of mostly assume their their family was a little weird.
0: Mm. Huh. huh. <laughs> you're seeing that. In yeah.
1: t- you're seeing it in culture too. You know, like people write sitcoms about their families and. And and films, you know, just about how odd certain aspects of their family life were.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. And I think we all see that that is I think we have this perception that family is supposed to be this this um, perfect compilation of people who will love and support us and be whatever we want them to be. And I don't I don't know many people who have that experience. I think, think I actually think family has a very different purpose, and that is to challenge us it teaches us to love in a very different way than i think it the the um maybe popular notion is in that in the sense that um the more challenging our family is to us the more it forces us to plumb the depths of who we are and figure out first of all what our what our capacity is as a human being to love and accept and tolerate people and then what it is to go on in the face of real challenge and and i don't actually consider my child to be difficult i think i had a a marvelous childhood i've heard i've heard so many and a lot of people write to me saying well you think you had it bad you should hear my story and I i say well i don't think i had it bad at all actually this was just my story um yeah, I it it was an unusual one perhaps. Less so now than it was in the 70s and 80s. And I think that's actually where the story is most interesting because it happened at the time when Canada was coming out. Not just my father, not just my family, but this culture was evolving in a very significant way at the same time that my father was. So in that in that sense, I feel it's he was really just a case in point, our family was an example of what was happening on a much larger scale.
1: Yeah, it's remarkable to me that you faced any resistance from others in sort of telling the story or finding an outlet to tell the story. Because when I step back and think of the elements that you had at your disposal to tell the story, your father's willingness to participate in some way, him handing you basically a treasure trove of material it's quite remarkable that anyone would be like, "Yeah, this isn't uh, this isn't really viable." Can you t- tell folks who may not be familiar with this book and and this one woman show about the tools you had to tell both your father's story and your own your own family story uh, through uh, this way?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, well, my own story I told through memory, obviously, and that that was the first part of the book, in fact, I assumed that the book would all be told in that voice, the first person and um I started that way. The script was certainly written in the first person, and the script is drawn from only the first section of the book it's It's my story as the child of a gay father and the way that I saw it so that I, I assumed that I would just be expanding that story. And I think I drew it to about 180 pages, maybe when until I felt that I was done. I mean, I really felt I've told all I need to tell about my side of things, but it certainly doesn't feel like a book. And, and there are, there are whole dimensions missing. And I wasn't sure where to take it from there. I initially thought maybe I would write as a backdrop, a some sort of history of the time and that that would both broaden the narrative and you know put the story in a context and so I called my dad and said dad I have a couple questions about just when you came out and what it was like in the 80s and so on and could I come into Toronto and talk to you and he said oh sure sure I also realized that I knew nothing about him as a young man I didn't know when he started, you know, questioning, wondering, fantasizing. I didn't know any of that. So Mm -hmm. I was curious about that as well. And then in the course of our conversation, I had asked him, um, is there anything else that you would like to add uh, to this story? And until then, it had been, we'd been working on this assumption that I was going to write something about something of a gay history um, of Toronto anyway, and have that sort of threaded in between my story or... Yeah, somehow a backdrop. And uh, so he was suggesting that I read different newspapers and novels and things like that. And then at the very end, almost as an afterthought, I, I said, Well, you know, is there anything you'd like to add? You know, it is your story ultimately. And he looked very pensive and then got up and went to his basement and came back with a box. And he put it on the kitchen table and said, Well, you might want to look through this. And I opened it up, and my dad is not the most organized person in the world, and so it was just stuffed full of papers and clippings, and nothing was in any sort of order, but it was um, uh, a lot of it was handwritten. And so I pulled out just one page that happened to be near the top, and it was clearly a journal entry on a loose-leaf um, paper, and it said uh, January 30th, 1980 last night I made it with a Roman Catholic priest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry. And, that, yeah. that, it is funny. It's on some level. That's a funny oh, thing. It's,
0: uh, it's funny on many levels. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and, um, that's when I knew, bingo, yeah, I don't think there's a writer in the world who wouldn't have alarm bells going off in their heads at that moment saying, yeah, ding, 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 here's the rest <laughs> of your book. And that's how I felt. I just felt, okay, uh, whatever that whole idea of history was just went out the window because this is what I need. So I didn't know what was in there, but I then spent, I took I was on my way to Mexico and I took it to Mexico and I spent the next month reading everything and rereading and then as i was reading i just realized okay he's now going to tell his story in his own words of the time that was to me the crucial piece the priceless piece actually because it would be one thing for him to you know for me to interview him and have him reflect upon that period but his voice would be completely different than it was at that time and what's fascinating to me about reading that segment of the book which i think is the strongest part of the book and i'm not just that's not uh, out of any sense of false modesty or anything i truly think it's the most powerful part and the most well-written part of the book i had no idea my father could write so well for one and and it's um he writes in just such compelling language because it's so raw and immediate and he's so terrified and i think for anyone who has trouble understanding what it feels like to come out. When you walk through those diaries and letters of my dad's, I really do think if you're a- at all sensitive, you can begin to really embody that experience and understand one, how confusing it is, and two, how terrifying. And he, it, it answers the question that a lot of people ask, um, which is, you know, is this a choice? You know, that's yeah. the, the question that, you know, do you choose this, or is this just who you are? And to me, you cannot read those journals and can, and not have the answer to that question. This is, this is when you live a closeted existence. It's it's sort of like trying to contain an ocean that is, that that needs to move, and um, it's a bit like trying to stop a wave with your fists. I mean, it, you you either. Surrender to the experience, and it's terrifying, but ultimately it's liberating or you drown and my dad drowned and a lot of people drowned for many years and still do
1: yeah I mean you divided it uh, the book up into these parts the way I saw it the way he saw it the way she saw it, which is a reference to your mother, and then the way we see it now and I think that uh, you you're i think you're very fortunate to be able to tell this story from multiple perspectives um I did notice that you're your brothers don't participate too much in this uh in this narrative in a sense you you kind of speak of their you speak of them almost as as memories and i'm curious was there any resistance from your family at all in the writing of this book because you know this was obviously yeah. a very difficult and painful uh transition to go from uh, for for your father to come out when he did at a time that the time that he did and to really shake up your family foundation I imagine this is still a source of some pain. Uh, can you maybe speak to that? Was there resistance yeah, sure. from, from your family? Uh,
0: well, I, I have to admit, I didn't ask anyone's permission to write the story. but And I don't even know that my brothers knew it was happening, although they knew about the show. They hadn't seen it, one, because one lives in Vancouver, and um, the other, I think, wasn't all that interested in seeing it. But, but uh, I should start from the beginning, which is that, At no point did any of us have a major break with my dad because he came out for whatever reason. And I think largely because um, we all were very close to him and he he um, paid enormous importance to that, that it was even though his priority was coming out in a sense, he place tremendous importance on his family and certainly his fam- his relationship with his children. And it was as important for him to be a good father as it was to be an openly gay man. So, so even my brothers, a lot of people assume that it was harder for my brothers because they were boys and because they were adolescent. And it might well have been, although um, we didn't really talk much as siblings about what was going on when we were all teenagers, you know, we were all just narcissistically in our own world and dealing with our own agonies and whatever it might be. So we didn't really talk much at that time, but we all um, carried on a really close relationship with my dad. Now, with strains and struggles and all of the normal adolescent rebellion and all of that, but... Um I think still what with what was within the bounds boundaries of you know normal adolescent behavior um and when I began to so so we've all been close to my dad, we all just have i think for my brothers, the main issue is that it is not an issue for them, it is simply not an issue. they really don't understand why I would want to get up on stage night after night and tell the story, and they certainly don't understand why I would spend my a year of my life writing a book about it. Mm. Um, so it's more that they don't get what the big deal is, I think, than that they feel there's a big deal there to be hidden or anything. Um, and we're very different people. My older brother, especially, he's just not someone who's very comfortable, you know, delving into, um, uh, well, certainly digging up old, old, uh, history and delving through the emotional, ramifications of those events or that's just not him. Mm. Um so I did not write about their experience very much, both out of respect for them, because they're both more private people, I think, than I am, and also because I didn't feel that I had really the right as a writer, and this is a bigger question, um, to involve them in an emotional way because I don't really know what their what their story is. And that's the story for them to tell. Um, but also because I felt it was – I do mention them and I bring them up. And when we did create the show, I actually wanted to include them more. And the director was the one who kept saying, look, this is not a story about your brothers. This is a story about your relationship with your father. And just for the sake of, you know, a strict, clean um, – self-propelled narrative in a theatrical sense, it was important for us to limit that and delineate that very clearly. Mm. And so it very naturally followed that when I wrote the book, I kept that same sort of laser focus that this is about my experience, the way I saw it, not the way we saw it as a family or as siblings, but the way I saw the situation unfolding. And that really is the only story I can tell with any degree of authority. Now, as you mentioned, I do... Draw in my father's story, but it's in his own words, and I also draw in my mother's story, but it, I don't entirely use her own words. But I do, in the sense that I tell her story th- through a series of conversations that she and I had as adults, when um, she had been recently widowed, uh, her second husband had died, and I had been recently um, heartbroken. So we were in a similar sort of emotional state and in a place where. Our our emotions lived very close to the surface, so there was a lot of sharing of heart in those days, and we lived together for a period. And in that time, we had these conversations about my dad and her marriage and that whole time, which we'd never, ever talked about before. And so, in a sense, I felt that I could honor her story and tell her story um, because she'd given it to me in her own words,
1: and i mean it's interesting that you earlier suggested that and i and I, i'm not disagreeing with you that your father's section is is the most uh, well-written and and powerful section of the book and it and it, it might well be but i do think that your the section where you and your mother are speaking as adults almost in the aftermath of so much uh, so many developments i suppose in your lives i actually found that to be the most painful and and heart-wrenching section
0: yeah, that's, uh, it's interesting you say that. I have a number of readers write to me and say it's their favorite section, even though it's very short. Um, it's the most poetic and it's certainly the one that took me the longest to write. And it was the most difficult section to write for sure. So I'm actually, I mean, I'm not glad that you found it the most painful, <laughs> but I am, I am, um, glad that it spoke to you so deeply because it, 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 it is, you know, my father's, uh, it's a tricky thing because there's no question that a person's emergence, the way my father emerged into full flower as a human being in his coming out, um, caused tremendous pain to those around him. And that, I think, is often what prevents people from coming out or not even coming out in the terms of their sexual orientation, but coming into the fullness of who they are as a person. It might be that they have outgrown a marriage or, or have to move on from family expectations or drastically shift what they do in the world. Everybody comes out at some point in their lives, or ideally they do. I think we all, we all as human beings long to come into full flower, whatever that means for us. Um, and so, and often it comes at at not the expense of other people, but it comes with a certain degree of pain for those people who are often most closest, most close to us, closest to us, excuse me. Right. Um So that was the case for my mom. I mean, there's just no question that it was hardest on her and that she bore the brunt in a way of that because she was the one who stayed home with three young children. Well, my dad was, I mean, there's no two ways of saying it. While well, he was going around to gay bars and baths in Toronto, you know, having a great sexual adventure. Now, there's no judgment or blame cast anywhere. That just was the situation. And, um, and it was tremendously difficult on her and um and it was humiliating at that time in a way that I don't think it is today to the same degree and so hers was you know she was the tragic heroine of the story and that um and the person who had to clean up afterwards um so it was a hard story to write a hard one to hear and a hard one to write but the thing that i Feel when I tell that story and well, you know what's nice is my mother did then get her turn she did come into full flower as a human being and continues to flower she's sort of like a bougainvillea that never stops and <laughs> um and that's just a beautiful thing too which is often the case when when you know I say at the end of the book the truth really does set us all free ideally when one person does that it does inspire and allow other people to do the same maybe not for years to come but but um I think my mother was probably happier um, beyond that marriage, and even though it wouldn't have been her choice to end it, so that in itself is interesting. But um, but uh, I don't get to tell that part of the story. The story.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
0: Isn't about her flowering. I could write another book about my mother, but I don't I don't know that I will just because hers is sort of a quiet, more personal story. but
1: It does seem to me that like from my perspective, you are um, addressing at least two compulsions, at least two compulsions. one as a writer and one as uh, a person living their lives. Uh, can you talk about the relationship uh, for you between the, the telling a really great story here? and also achieving some form of catharsis because i assume that you've uh, had the rare experience of writing something that is fulfilling and and interesting but it's also has to be somewhat therapeutic for you after all these years is that fair um
0: well you know i i actually feel that when it's therapeutic it's not ready to be written yet uh, now i i don't for me <laughs> i I'm ready to concede that there are people who write cathartic books that are, um, you know, that have as much artistic merit as they do uh, a sense of emotional release for the, for the writer. But my feeling, and when I teach memoir, I talk about the different stages of writing and the, for me, the memoirs that work, the ones that I adore, the ones that are transcendent and the ones that have some sort of universal appeal and speak far more about a greater story than just their own personal story. They are the ones to me where the author has done the writer has done so much emotional work before page one and and they've they have no access to grind anymore. they're not trying to prove anything to anyone. they're not trying to get back at anyone. Um, I feel that we come to write our story and we feel that we're ready. And we probably have about a 1,000 pages in us before we're actually ready. Hmm. And those 1,000 pages aren't actually meant to be read by anyone but but the author, the person writing. Or maybe they're not even meant to be meant re- read by the writer. They're just meant to be written down and then burned in some ceremonial cleansing way, perhaps. <laughs> I did a lot of that. Oh, okay. And then not for this book, I felt by the time I was read, I, by the time I sat down to write this, I mean, it had been 30 years since everything had happened. So I, you know, and we were living, we live a very, I, I forget that it's really, um, a subject of interest that my father's partner is a man. I mean, I really forget that. That's how, that's how, um, old this story is for us, um, so it's such a part of my life in a way that I you know there weren't there weren't elements of it that I had to work through. I felt by the time I sat down to write it it was just pure joy and um, even though it was hard at times it the just the the effort of writing the the task of writing was a really joyful one and very easy. And I'm not that way normally as a writer. My first book t- just tore Tied me in knots to write. Right. So this was um, a really pleasant experience to have. But I do feel so, so we get to this place as writers where we look out and we can see the story that we want to write. But there is, uh, especially from memoir, this enormous chasm or very dry canyon often that we have to crawl down into and cross and it's brutal work to do that and when we climb up the other side and we've forgiven everyone, we've let go of everything, we've retraced all of our steps, we've peeled back all of those memories, we've crawled behind the difficult characters and humanized them and um, then we're ready to start writing. Hmm. And and so I was only ready to start writing 30 years after the event.
1: It's interesting to me that earlier you suggested that you were surprised by how great a writer your father was. He's a published author, is he not?
0: Well, yeah, but he's an academic, and so it's mostly unreadable. <laughs> i apologize all the academics out there no i mean it's you know it's it's he he's published books on things like electoral behavior and political parties and and uh an an extensive history of the liberal party you know exhaustive rather history of the liberal party so it's not they're not books um that i've ever finished um so I knew that he was capable of writing in, you know, in a clear, intelligent, coherent fashion. I did not know that he was a poet and that he could write lyrically right. and so movingly.
1: Right. Okay. That's fair. Do you, do you assume that your own interest in writing and facility at it might be something you inherited from your father or inspired by your father who as, as a writer?
0: Yeah, I don't know that you can inherit that, but I'm sure it was inspired. It it was also inspired by my mother, um, and I think it was inspired mostly by their music, not by by anything that I might have read that they had written. They're both musicians, and so lyricism was very present in our lives. And when I write, I draw mostly on music, I think, in in terms of just the musicality of sentences and rhythm and meter and that kind of thing, and then just a sentence that lifts. You know, I think I learned that actually through music, not through a study of literature. I actually failed high school English and never studied English, so I don't really know what the study of language is. I know what the study of uh, music is and yeah. how it applies to language.
1: Oh, okay, that's interesting. So your your academic background is primarily music? Yes, yeah. Ah, that actually makes a lot of sense because I mean, there many of the passages are very, I suppose, poetic and lyrical, as you say. Mm, yeah. Thank you. Well, uh, your father uh, in in the book he's a he has a firm allegiance to the Liberal Party, and I'm curious and and was that passed on to the rest of the family? Did everyone kind of accept that? Or
0: yeah, that that is one of those things I think that's inherited. Um, now, one can reject one's family's political leanings, obviously, but it was such a joyful part of my father's life uh, that it became naturally one of ours. But I, didn't, I did not grow up thinking, Oh, you know, I didn't grow up as a fan of the Liberal Party, and actually neither, now that I think of it, neither did my brothers, but we're liberal-minded, for sure, yeah.
1: Okay, so your your familial allegiance hasn't, there If you th- there is actually a familial allegiance, and it hasn't altered too greatly.
0: To the party or to-, <laughs> to the to the
1: mindset or yeah actually i am curious about that we are in kind of a, a election uh, there's a lot of election stuff going on do you want to get yeah, into that
0: um, not particularly
1: <laughs> i'm just curious if your father has been uh uh disheartened at all by the liberal party
0: oh you'd have to ask him that is one area of our lives that we uh, that we um yeah, I think we've called a truce as a family not to discuss politics cuz we do we have pretty differing views on politics. That's okay. uh Yeah, if there's any sensitive area in the in the family, that's it. I think we there's a tacit agreement just not to talk politics when we get together cuz we have so much fun when we don't and so little fun when we do.
1: <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I will say that one of the most remarkable parts of the story is uh, your father in particular Loved Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and mm-hmm. and then there's an, a moment in the story where this love is, I suppose, let's—I well, almost use the word consummated, but that doesn't make much <laughs> sense. But it is sort of there is a there is this manifestation, there's a connection to Trudeau, and I found that very startling.
0: Yeah, it yeah, was a really fun moment because we did grow up. We grew up with pictures of Trudeau everywhere in our house. He had, my father had a picture of um, of him and the boys. It was a Christmas card sitting on our front hall table 12 months a year. I mean, it just was as though he were this uncle who hadn't happened to visit in the last 10 years or something there was a picture of him one of his early electoral posters in the garage so we saw it every day when we drove into the garage and he was this presence and we you know his voice was always on the radio and on television and my dad loved him he was certainly part of trudeau mania and believed so strongly in a philosopher king as a prime minister imagine what a concept <laughs> and um so and his love of the arts his support of the arts that meant that was um had tremendous meaning and importance for for my family. And um so he was always just a a very strong presence in our lives. And then as I say, my dad wrote this exhaustive history of the Liberal Party up to the Trudeau era and so did a lot of research into his life and politics and policies and so on. And um and then when I w- I was living in Czechoslovakia in just after the Velvet Revolution in 1990 and um the Prague spring festival was on and my dad came to visit and I got us tickets, but because I was getting tickets as a Czech citizen and not a foreign citizen, I got tickets for us. They only, <laughs> they only sold the tickets to the Czechs behind the orchestra. So we had a full view of the audience and, um, and my, I, I saw that Pierre Trudeau was in the audience, and I, I elbowed my dad and said, "Dad, look out there! Look, I was about by then maybe twenty-four or something." I said, "Look, look, there's Pierre Trudeau." So my dad was thrilled. And afterwards, um, Trudeau was in the lobby with, I think, Sasha, um, who, and they were receiving people and just shaking hands. And uh, so my dad said, "Oh, we must go and shake hands." And and I wasn't interested in shaking his hand, but I went with my dad because I knew it would be a thrill for him. I think he'd met him once before at a, at a leadership convention or something, but again, oh, okay.
1: Junior- he had met him before and you, you just weren't that keen to meet Pierre Trudeau at that point.
0: Well, I just wasn't into that sort of fawning kind of, you know, sure. I'm, I'm not really into celebrity fawning. So, um, so, uh, Uh, But I did, and we met, and then my dad mentioned that I was just about to get on the Trans-Siberian Express and go to China, and that Trudeau had traveled in China when he was a bit older, I think, than I was. And so we we started chatting just about that, and he said, oh, well, tell me all about it when you get back. And so I thought, well, all right, so so when I was in China, I wrote him a letter and just sent it to my dad and said, "Can you find a way to get this to him?" Because, oh, I guess because Pierre, he had he had suggested I go to this one market in Kashgar at the crossroads of you know, it's sort of um, uh, Pakistan, china what I don't know the names of the countries now, Kazakhstan, but Kyrgyzia, is that the name anyway now? In any case, it's a fascinating corner of the world, and he suggested I go to this market, and I did. And um, and it took a few weeks to get there, but I got there. And when I was there, I sat on the back of a donkey cart and wrote this just sort of lyric poem, I guess, about where I was, and then sent it to my dad and said, "Could you send this to? Could you find a way to get this to to Trudeau?" And so he just sent it to his law office. And then, to make a long story short, um, when I. Trudeau wrote back, and we started this letter writing. And then when I got back to Canada, I called him up, and he said, "We'll come for lunch. And that started this whole 10-year friendship. That's so awesome. it <laughs> was quite, yeah, it was quite fun. Yeah.
1: It's quite remarkable that you could develop a connection with not only, you know, one of Canada's most prominent people, but someone your dad sort of worshipped in some ways. I know,
0: it was really funny. It was a bit odd, actually, at first, because I think my dad was so fascinated, but he, he wanted almost briefings. What did you talk about at lunch? And, uh, and then as it went on, as the years went on, um, uh, and at one point, I guess Trudeau was, he was coming to Toronto and he was going to come to my dad's for dinner. And then he didn't, I can't remember why that didn't happen, but that would have been really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. That would have meant a lot to my dad.
1: Now, I know that, you know, you've told this story because you, you recognize that there was something interesting about it and, uh, you know, you, you wanted to share your family story with, with the world, but do you suppose there's an underlying empowering purpose uh, for uh, of the book and, and of your one woman show?
0: Yeah, I, I certainly didn't set out with a message, you know, that I wanted to write, um, But it feels as though that sort of happened on its own in the sense that um, it's a very uplifting story for people. And I do think for those people who, well, you know, I'm going to just speak in examples. I've had people come up and say to me, both of my sons were gay. And until I read your book, I thought there was something wrong with our family. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, Other people who've said, you know this i didn't know there was another person who had this story th- who was my age i've never talked to someone who's told their story thank you for telling it and then all kinds of people who say i don't know anyone who's gay i don't have any gay relative but this story felt feels like it was about my family too it was you know this quirky collection of people with these ridiculous um habits and personalities and moments of tremendous tension and laughter um I I feel as though it's 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 a confirmation of this idea that we all need to become the fullest expression of who we are as people. That is actually our life mission. And some people do it in my father's case he did it through this crucible of a sexual orientation that was unacceptable at the time that he was coming out. But we all, I think, have our dark night of the soul that leads us to the lightness of place, the lightness of who we are. And, and it, this is an example of someone who's done that. And it, it does require bravery. It actually requires selfishness, too. And selfishness isn't always a bad thing uh, if it's in the service of truth. And the truth really does end up being a gift to everyone who touches it, however painful it might be when it's delivered.
1: I mean I I totally relate to you on a few different levels. A few years ago my sister came out and um my younger sister and to this day it's uh my parents can't really accept it. And mm-hmm. uh you know I've offered we've offered to like get them things to read or talk to people but they just can't deal with it. They have not met my my sister yeah. owns a house with her partner, you know, in in mm-hmm. Toronto and they can't they've never met her. It's been many years now. So, I mean, on many levels, your story resonated with me. But the other side of the kind of triumph uh, of your story where people, uh, you know, actually achieve some form of acceptance is that in some cases, it doesn't seem like that light is ever going to show up at the end of the tunnel, so to speak.
0: Well, and it didn't for my father's siblings. My father lost both his siblings. They both disowned him. Mm -hmm. And um, on his deathbed, my father's brother called him to his bedside and didn't forgive him but did acknowledge him. But my father's sister, who's just about to turn 92, I think, hasn't spoken to my father in 35 years. So that never came. Um, But what did come for me because i distanced myself from her i was very hurt by her decision even though she feels that her decision was was one um of support for my mother and for us for uh, my you know the children mm. and i respect that i can understand that that's how she felt and that's what she Uh, that's where she felt her allegiance should go because she felt that my father was... Well, she felt it was very self-indulgent, what he was doing, and disgraceful and all sorts of other things, and that he um, should have put his family first. Um, Interestingly, just after the book came out, my dad and I went to a meeting of the Gay Fathers of Toronto, and that's the first time they'd ever had a child of a gay father. Normally, it's a gay father's support group for guys who are married and coming out. And uh, they invited me and my dad and also uh, a man and his daughter. And his daughter runs something called uh, Gay Dads. Oh, I can't remember what her group is. Gay Dads Project or something in the U.S. And he had chosen not to come out until all of his kids were through school. And there were four kids. Mm. And so it meant that they stayed married and he lived as a married man for much, much longer than he would have done had there not been all these people that he was taking into consideration. The interesting thing was that his daughter is still angry at him and furious that he lived this lie, as she called it. I mean, it was fascinating to see how different our stories were. And one guy at the end of it said, you know, this feels to me as though there are two stories happening here. And one is about truth and pride. And that's all he said. Hmm. And my, when my dad came out, he blew that closet door right off its hinges. I mean, there was no going back in for him and come hell or high water. He was an openly gay man and it cost him a lot. It cost him family, friends, um, uh, his marriage. Um, um, and, but it was so interesting to see this other man who really felt that he was acting for everybody on, el- you know, for, for the sake of everybody else, he was going to stay in the closet. And his relationship with his wife is horrible, apparently. They're just, you know, tearing each other limb to limb. Yeah. And his, with his kids as well, who so resent him doing this for so long. It was fascinating to me. And my father's sister has never forgiven him. And I felt it, it called upon me to learn to forgive her because I want her to be a certain way I want her to I wanted her to be a certain way, I wanted her to have a certain kind of reaction, I wanted her to accept my father for who he is, and so in essence i was I had expectations of her that were all about what I wanted, but they weren't actually just about respecting her for who she was, loving her for who she was at this moment. If she were disabled and couldn't, you know, couldn't get out of a wheelchair and play tennis, I wouldn't be angry at her. And so I sometimes look at her and think, this is an emotional disability. She Mm -hmm. can't do this. And I can choose to be angry, but it's actually not going to help. What can help is accepting, is modeling the sort of acceptance and respect and love that I wished that she would do for my father.
1: Yeah. You mentioned that your brothers, uh, just because of, or at least one of your brothers, at least for geographic reasons, hasn't seen uh, your your show. Uh, what is the general family reaction to this book? And for those of them who have seen the show, what is? How would you? Uh... Yeah, he has
0: seen it now. Actually, oh, okay. he hadn't when I first began. Everybody has seen the show now. Um, yeah, they all really liked it. I think they were very pleasantly surprised. Now, it was hardest for my mom for obvious reasons, and uh, and I can't say that she enjoyed it, but she recognized the value of it, and uh, she went twice. Oh, yeah. nice! <laughs> and mm-hmm.
1: and and how does the uh, you mentioned that the uh, initial uh, play uh, was uh, short, and it's been expanded. How does the how does the book and the one woman show? How do they compare?
0: Well, the script is twenty five pages, and the book is three hundred. Right, that's <laughs> the first obvious comparison. Uh, the The show draws upon the first portion of the book so my story and it's a series of vignettes and scenes from those from sort of early childhood when life you know when we had a sort of normal family from the outside but my dad was this colorful character who skipped through the streets uh singing Gilbert and Sullivan operettas and baking souffles for my birthday parties and things like that and then it moves through the point where everything shifted and um I think I think both books are. I really love playing with humor, and there's a lot of humor in the show. People, I think, laugh as much as anything. Um, it was also the disco era, and yeah, my I mean, my dad's an easy person to laugh with, not at necessarily, but with. Um, and then it was just such a funny time with Bee Gees and Rod Stewart, or not Rod Stewart, Barry Manilow, and all these different um, characters who are also pretty easy to. Laugh at in those <laughs>
1: cases. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. Um, you you mentioned the kind of humor uh, of the book and, and of the story. This might seem odd to you, but you write so lovingly of croissants that <laughs> I have consumed. Like you, it's like a, it's a recurring thing. I've I've because there's a new in Guelph here. There's a guy, he's like a French baker, and I have consumed so many croissants. I, I read your book at night, and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get up and have a croissant. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, that's lovely.
0: That's beautiful. I'm just about to go to the market and buy fresh croissants. Actually. It's
1: great. Your father baked. Uh, he was. A, he is a baker, and uh, he made his own croissants. And then you're in France eating croissants. There's a croissant. Yeah, nice. You might as well have. For me, the book might as well be called croissant. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love that. Thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, so there's uh, it's funny that there are these light and flaky moments <laughs> 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 in, in this book. It's it's really lovely. It's. Uh... <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, no, it's really wonderful. So what is actually next for you? You alluded to the fact that you have an unfinished book that you need mm-hmm. to complete. Is that uh, your primary uh, concern these That's days?
0: That's my next That's my next uh, writing project, but performing takes up a lot of my um, time and energy now, and it's, it's a very different focus. I find it difficult to be performing and writing at the same time, because one, I'm just so out in the world, and the other is much more kind of insular. Um, existence. And so I find it a bit difficult to shift between the two. So at the moment this is performance season now the summer, spring, summer, fall. And so I'm um I'm not doing nearly as many shows as I did last summer, but I am doing quite a few and quite a few just talks and readings and traveling and things like that. So I I'm at a point actually where I'm looking to see what is next. What is next? Yeah. Okay. I look forward to having a new book out, but I also I'm really happy riding. It feels like a nice ride with this book, and it is only just moving into the U.S. now, so it could be a little while longer that I that I um, keep on the croissant train.
1: <laughs> it is interesting that uh, books literally have a longer shelf life than other art forms, in the sense that you know people it takes it seems to take a little longer for for them to catch on. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm often talking to musicians or, or I don't know, in some cases, filmmakers. And they kind of put out a thing and it's there and it's quickly uh, kind of absorbed by people uh, on some level. But, yeah, it's funny that your book, it came out, uh, I guess, last year, right? 2013?
0: Yeah. Yeah, a year ago. Yeah. And, and
1: now you're saying it's, fi- it's just now moving into a different market, which means kind of relaunching it, in a sense.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. And I... C- it's a bit it's the it's the artist dilemma. How much do we spend creating and how much do we spend supporting what we've just created? I think everyone struggles with this, but because I'm also because I really I really enjoy performing. That feels as much a part of who I am as writing. It was a bit of an accidental discovery that, but once I did discover it, I realized, "Oh, this is this other piece of myself that's been dormant for so long." So, In a sense, every time I do the show, I'm creating something. So it doesn't just feel like promotion, fortunately. Um, It feels like a recreation every time. But I know what you mean about books. I I really love that about books, actually, that they have this enduring, lasting quality and that they can pick up momentum as time goes on rather than lose it. Like Mm -hmm. my first book, Honeymoon and Perda, I've just been so um, gratified and well, awestruck too by just how that book continues to roll and roll and move into different worlds and be picked up by book clubs, and it that's been it's just been magnificent. That book's thirteen years old, and I still get letters from people who are just discovering it and reading it, and their book clubs reading it, or whatever it is. It's marvelous. It's yeah. really
1: satisfying. Well, that's good for you, and I and I know that uh, you mentioned that the book you are working on now has something to do with Mexico and children. Is, mm-hmm. that, is that right?
0: Yes, it does. Yeah, we spent, as I said, we spent many years living there and my son did a lot of his elementary schooling in Mexico in a little town called the Pozlan in the Central Highlands, which is a magnificent place that is rich in legend and and story and this beautiful blending of, well, you know, there's this veil between reality and fiction that we draw, well, that in Mexico is very thin, we tend to draw a very clear line or try, I think very unsuccessfully, we try to draw this very clear line between what is fiction and what is non. And in Mexico... Uh, as in other parts of the world, too. I mean, Marcus was famous for magical realism, which I think is a term that the West came up with to understand what that expanded reality really is. But that's life in Latin America. So I'm really I'm exploring that, but it's not an easy book to write. I've been at it for many years. I keep putting it away and then coming back to it.
1: Well, as you say, and you've been keeping very busy uh, with other stuff, so I wish you the best of luck with that uh, project as well. Thanks so much, Fish. Yeah. I want to let people know once again that the Eden Mills Writers Festival and the Bookshelf are presenting uh, Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter, Growing Up with a Gay Dad. It's a one-woman show at the E-Bar on Friday, May 23rd, and you can learn more about it at edenmillswritersfestival.ca or allisonwaring.com. And, uh, yeah, the show starts at uh, 8 p.m., and uh, we've got uh, – it looks like there's going to be a good crowd there, Allison. So we're looking forward to seeing you in Guelph.
0: Great. Me too.
1: Well, Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much for your time, and uh, as I say, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K. Control with a K 933 at gmail.com You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative V-I-S-H K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E And you can also like our Facebook page A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern and you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph you can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again.